Today, I'd like to welcome Dr. Constantino Sambarinis to the podcast. Constantino's had a circuitous route to our Brown Surgery Training Program. He attended medical school at the University of Athens in Greece. He then went on to complete his master's in cancer research at King's College in London. He then made his way to the U.S. where he worked as a postdoc at NYU for two and a half years studying pancreatic cancer. He then started his general surgery residency at Harlem Hospital where he also found time to study pancreatic cancer metastasis and hepatic pre-metastatic pancreatic metastasis over at Memorial Sloan Kettering. We were lucky enough to land Constantinos in his third year to complete his general surgery residency with us and he will now be going on to Rutgers to complete his surgical oncology fellowship next year. All right, so I'd like to welcome uh, Dr. Constantino Zambarinis to the podcast today. Hello, Ken. I'm excited to be here talking about HIPEC. We've been doing HIPECs at our institution for some years, uh, here with Dr. Miner, obviously, and I think it's still an operation and a technique that still not confuses some residents, but I don't think a lot of our residents who, when they start rotating on the surgical oncology service, have a great understanding of the role for HIPEC, uh, how it's done, and some of the post-operative care around those patients. So, yeah, the first question that I would have is, is what exactly is HIPEC? Yeah, so uh, first of all, let me disclose that I'm not an expert in HIPEC, but I hope to become one one day. <laughs> Briefly, uh, HIPEC stands for Hyperthermic Intraperitoneal Chemotherapy, and uh, essentially refers to the administration of chemotherapy in the uh, peritoneal cavity, uh, either open or laparoscopically. But when we talk about uh, HIPEC, we usually talk about combining it with uh, cytor reduction, which means that we're trying to take away macroscopic disease from the abdominal cavity and uh, allow the chemotherapy to dwell in the abdominal cavity so it can target the uh, residual microscopic disease. This process does not address any extra perineal disease, so this has to be factored in when selecting the patients. And actually, this is one of the biggest challenges nowadays, and that's why we've had several uh, recent trials that have uh, seemingly negative results. I think a big part of it is attributed to the fact that we are not that good in engaging disease biology, and I think that's where the future uh, will have uh, exciting uh, stuff to follow. How exactly did HIPEC evolve uh, and what are some of the rationales behind its therapy? Yeah, so um, I think uh, that's a key question to understand where we are standing today and, and where we are headed in, in the future. So it actually dates back uh, almost a century ago. Uh, first person to uh, start aggressive debulking was uh, uh, Joe Meigs with the eponymous uh, syndrome who, who um, was working on, on ovarian cancer and demonstrated that if you aggressively debulk the perineal surface, you improve patient's uh, survival. This was expanded to the disease entity of pseudomyxoma peritonei in the 60s and 70s when chemotherapeutic agents began to um, improve at the same time. And in the late 70s, Robert Dendrick per, uh, performed the first uh, pharmacokinetic studies on uh, IP meaning intracranial chemotherapy administration, and he noted that IP chemotherapeutics can achieve a uh, much higher concentration on the perineal surfaces than uh, if they were administered systemically with a much less serious uh, side effect profile. So it was very beneficial in that sense because you could kind of target the tumor burden regionally, and that was potentially exploitable uh, by chemical advantage for the removal of patients with uh, microscopic peritoneal seeding, either to treat what's there or to prevent uh, future metastasis from uh, evolving. But Dendrick didn't have an apparatus to administer the chemotherapy. So around the same time, uh, Fortner from Memorial Sloan Kettering and his team worked on developing the first real HIPEC apparatus and demonstrated its efficacy in rats. So this wasn't just one person developing it really. It was multiple people who were smart enough and, and uh, enthusiastic about it 
and were forward thinkers who were developing the technology. At the same time, John Spratt demonstrated the benefit of heated intracranial perfusion in, uh, in dogs. He developed a, a, a clinical delivery system that he called uh, TIFF's Thermal Infusion Filtration System. And uh, Palta and colleagues developed an, uh, an IP therapy filtration system. Uh, so they both kind of simultaneously paved the way for HIPEC. What was the rationale with heating the chemotherapeutic agents? Heat uh, can have multiple effects in uh, terms of direct cytotoxicity to cancer cells. Uh, denaturation of their proteins, activation of heat shock proteins in, in uh, not only cancers but also in, in stromal cells, uh, immune infiltration and potentially immunogenic cell death. So it can incite an anti-tumor uh, immune response. Uh, but also it has some pharmacokinetic properties that promote some synergism with, uh, with certain chemotherapeutic agents. Now, not every chemotherapeutic agent synergize with heat. And actually, one of the ongoing areas of uh, research is normal thermic perfusional uh, intracranial chemotherapy, NIPEC. But that's the rationale for, for heat. In 79, actually, the first patient that was treated with HIPEC uh, was done by Spratt. And he used thiotepa, which is not a commonly used agent, but he heated it at pretty high temperature, 43 degrees. And he published the first result, essentially, of a effectively treated patient with HIPEC. Now, the Western countries forgot about HIPEC for a while, and the Japanese took the technology and developed it uh, much further. Eventually, uh, it circled back to the West a um, couple of decades later. It wasn't until Sugarbaker, Paul Sugarbaker, um, developed his peritonectomy procedures that HIPEC took off in the West, really. And since then, uh, multiple brilliant scientists and surgeons in uh, the Europe and the United States performed several trials and uh, really uh, nailed down the role of HIPEC in certain uh, conditions. That gets to the next uh, question is like currently where we stand now is what malignancies benefit from the use of HIPEC? There are malignancies that we have, you know, almost absolute proof I would say that that benefit from HIPEC, uh, CRS and HIPEC, CRS is cytoreduction reduction and HIPEC and there's others that we have the sense that some patients benefit, but trials are somewhat uh, controversial. So to understand what I'm trying to say is that we have to think of the biology of the tumor and think which patients and which malignancies have the right biology that can be targeted by this technology. So the way I think about it is that you are hoping to target a tumor that is logoregionally aggressive, but hasn't spread outside the abdominal cavity. If you treat that by debulking and then treat microscopic disease with chemotherapy, then you have a good chance of long-term survival and long-term recurrence-free uh, survival. If on the other hand, you have a tumor that even when it's very small, tends to disseminate systemically and you are likely to have microscopic uh, disease outside the abdomen, uh, that's occult, and then it just flares, then you are not likely to offer the patient a uh, benefit. And, and to that extent, cancers that are poorly differentiated, regardless of the primary, are not likely to respond well to uh, CRS and, and HIPEC because those cancer cells tend to um, exit the tumor very early. They undergo uh, epithelial to mesenchymal transition. They find harbor in, uh, in a dormant state in distant niches. And when the time is right and they have the favorable soil, then they just flare and develop into um, clinically evident metastasis. Uh, whereas if you have an indolent tumor, like many appendiceal neoplasms, that is, let's say they are 
probably the best example of where hyphae is applied. Those are indolent, slow growing, and they just spread in the abdomen, but they never leave the abdomen really, or they can, but they don't do that that often, then that's a good uh, target. So uh, I think perennial surface oncology group international recommendations are uh, spot on, and they recommend that CRS hypeg is used for the treatment of pseudomyxoma peritoneae and appendiceal neoplasms with perineal metastasis and should be considered as uh, also for uh, selected patients with uh, mesothelioma, for which is kind of the standard of care, uh, and for patients with colorectal cancer with moderate to small volume peritoneal disease. Patients who have ovarian or advanced peritoneal metastasis from gastric cancer may benefit from this strategy, but we uh, need to gain additional evidence through through collaborative studies in experience centers and, and so forth. And uh, ongoing research is um, happening on, on neoadjuvant application of IP uh, chemotherapy with systemic chemotherapy in many instances. And SOGI, the Vernal Surface Oncology Group Internationals, um, recommends that we avoid administering CRS HIPEG in patients who are unlikely to undergo a complete or near complete site uh, reduction or resection due to comorbidities because these patients are unlikely to achieve a full recovery. We won't be able to penetrate their residual disease with the chemotherapy. And when you talk about that, what does the survival benefit for these patients look like? Is that dependent on your amount of cytoreductive surgery that you can perform at the time of operation? Yes, yeah, certainly. Predictors of survival obviously are primary tumor-related variables such as uh, differentiation grade, and, but also the, the uh, burden of disease in the perineal cavity as well as extra uh, perineal metastasis, uh, extra abdominal, I should say. So if someone has uh, multiple lung meds or bony meds, in addition to uh, carcinomatosis, perineal carcinomatosis, then those patients are unlikely to benefit. Whereas if you have limited disease in the peritoneum, small nodules that can be effectively debulked, then you are much more likely to uh, benefit from, from site reduction and HIBEC. And there's definitely more to come in the future by doing genomic analysis of the tumors and understanding better the molecular biology and their therapeutic vulnerabilities. You mentioned this a little bit earlier, uh, the you know chemotherapeutic agents that were available when this technique was evolving in the 70s. When we talk about the chemotherapeutic agents that we use now for this therapy, what are your primary agents that residents are going to encounter? The most commonly used uh, agent in the United States, I would say, is mitomycin. C, and this is what we use in our institution in the patients that we treat with uh, HIPEC. Uh, mitomycin C is a, essentially an alkylating antibiotic drug that is derived from uh, uh, streptomyces uh, species, and it's a non-cell cycle specific agent. Uh, it has synergistic effects with uh, hyperthermia, so that's why we use it for HIPEC, and it has a very favorable pharmacodynamic uh, profile, meaning that it achieves very high concentrations and high area under the curve over time in the perineal cavity with minimal systemic dissemination. It can still happen and cause a side effect, but the ratios are very uh, favorable and the uh, side effect profile is pretty uh, acceptable and we know how to manage it very well. And it's really the standard of care for appendiceal cancers in exome operating and uh, usually they go to for colorectal cancer in the US in the centers that, that do that, but also for some other malignancies. Uh, there's also many Folfox-like regimens that are much preferred in uh, in Europe, and uh, they have been studied. Uh, that's actually one of the areas of controversy in the recent uh, trials, like the Prodigy Seven, and so forth. 
and they're used for uh, the same tumors that we use um, itomycin C, but also doxorubicin cisplatin combo is used for ovarian cancer for gastric and mesothelioma. I think to switch gears a little bit, because uh, I think this is there's a little bit of mystique around how it's actually performed in the OR. Can you just talk a little bit about the technique after your cytoreductive portion of the case? Absolutely, yeah. Um, essentially, you uh, approach the patient um, in a, uh, through an exploratory laparotomy. You assess the uh, disease burden and you can calculate indices like the perineal carcinomatosis index, which looks at uh, essentially all regions of the abdomen and, and grades. Uh, the disease burden, and if you decide that the patient is a candidate for um, debulking that will likely lead to minimal mac macroscopic disease or no macroscopic disease, then you proceed with your debulking, the cytoreduction phase or CRS phase. Once that's completed, then you will set up your perfusion system. So you usually we insert uh, an inflow and an outflow cannula, which are connected to the perfusion uh, apparatus. And uh, we allow a dwelling of uh, the chemotherapeutic agent at a set temperature. Usually we do it for one and a half to two hours in the United States and in our institution. In Europe, it's often done, and in some of the European studies, it's done for a much shorter duration. And again, that's one of the criticisms of uh, one, some of the recent trials, and uh, it's fueling a lot of debate and also enthusiasm for maybe uh, more favorable results if the chemotherapy is done for a longer period of time with different combination of agents and so forth. And while we're doing this perfusion, we do, as Dr. Miner says, the shake and bake. So someone has to kind of um, agitate with the, uh, the abdomen so that chemotherapy gets distributed better. So the, the abdomen, abdomen is cavity. closed at this point. You just have yes. your access can cannulas in the yeah. abdomen and someone standing there for the, for the duration of the dwell time. Yeah, so uh, once the uh, one and a half to two hour dwell time is completed, then the abdomen is opened Again, because the, uh, during that temporary closure that's done in a kind of mass closure fashion, we don't uh, use the anatomic closure that we open. Use just want a seal, essentially, uh, so that the chemotherapy can perfuse and, and dwell in the perineal cavity. And uh, we uh, ensure that hemostasis is, is obtained and formal closure is performed once the cannulas are uh, removed. This can be done also laparoscopically by experienced surgeons. There's a... Uh, um, advantages and disadvantages of that approach. Laparoscopic HIPEC has um, the advantage of reduced heat loss uh, and increased tissue penetration due to higher intra-abdominal pressure, uh, which kind of pushes the chemotherapy into the tissues. Uh, but on the other hand, the distribution of the chemotherapeutic agents tends to be a little bit uh, less homogeneous, um, likely because of the position of the cannula and uh, the fact that you haven't mobilized the perineal surface the way you do when you do a formal cytoreduction and, and uh, HIPEC. So th this is another area of ongoing study. And, and in the same kind of thinking, people are studying delivering uh, HIPEC with increased pressure in the perineal cavity uh, if you do it open to kind of try to match the effect you're achieving with laparoscopy. What temperature are we achieving with our agents currently? Usually it's around 41 to 42 degrees. It can be a little bit variable and uh, that can be set up on the perfusion uh, apparatus. And another thing that I found interesting when reading about this recently is that uh, the dosing of the chemotherapeutic agent is usually targeted to the body surface area, but actually there's ongoing research and novel perfusion apparatuses that can actually measure the concentration of the chemotherapeutic agent in real time in the perfusate so that it can adjust it to that rather than the, uh, just the size of the patient. And that way you are achieving 
a more focused uh, uh, target, essentially. Great. I think that's a good time to go over some of the intraoperative considerations when you have these patients on the table. They're, they're down there for uh, a few hours at least between the cytoreductive portion and then the perfusate portion of the case. Uh, what is the discussion with the anesthesia, some of the physiologic changes that happens uh, or that one can expect to go on uh, while you're performing a, a high-pec? Uh, that's one of the most important things one has to consider when performing the high-pec actually. Uh, and you need to have an experienced team doing this. Uh, not only the surgeon, the assistants, the perfusionist, the anesthesiologist, uh, everyone in the room really is should be on board and communicating clearly at all times. Uh, the reason for that is because obviously you have a long operative time. This can go up to 10, 12 hours as you mentioned, but you have uh, significant physiologic changes during this operation, which are multifactorial really. You have an open abdomen for several hours, you're losing fluids, you are have the stress of surgery, you are resecting tissues everywhere, you are doing peritonectomies, you are stripping the diaphragm, you're stripping the glycerin's capsules, you're ablating here and there. So you're generating a tremendous surge response uh, in the patient and that leads to capillary leakages, we know uh, third spacing, but also many other physiologic changes. Uh, so you really have to be in close communication with the anesthesiologist and you need to at times pause, ask them how is the patient doing, allow them to catch up with uh, the appropriate fluids and, and uh, so forth. Open abdomen and um, fluid losses can also lead to hypothermia. So when you're doing your procedure, it's good to have a um, heating device like a bear hugger that you commonly use on top of the patient. And on the other hand, the uh, HIPEC, the heating part of, of the uh, procedure can cause hyperthermia. So you can deal with that by having a, a cooling blanket under the patient. So you need really good setup. You need to be um, prepared and be ahead of the game and anticipate the things that can, that can go wrong. And as you know, temperature changes can affect metabolic function, immune function, coagulation, uh, it's like when we have a trauma patient, really, and we are led to the little triad, you can have that uh, magnified several times because you have so many other factors in play, including the chemotherapeutic agents and, and so forth. And that brings the, the question, how do you gauge your resuscitation, really? And the same things that apply to uh, any critical care, uh, critical care scenario apply here as well. So goal-directed therapy is probably the best way, even though it hasn't been studied that extensively in in the setting of uh, HIPEC, there is uh, some evidence that it's probably the best way to resuscitate. Uh, crystalloids are the most commonly used fluid for resuscitation, but to the discretion of the surgeon and the anesthesiologist, you can employ colloids like albumin. Albumin is actually um, favored by many experts in the field. When you have a lot of ascites that you're draining, when you do significant debulkings, because you can have tremendous albumin losses, so you're doing point of care testing and you know that the albumin is low and you're resuscitating a lot, then you can also give some shots of albumin. Uh, that can be uh, really helpful. Uh, you can employ devices that predict uh, accurate bit to bit variation um, of hemodynamic parameters such as pulse pressure, stroke volume uh, variation, and so forth. So you can guide your resuscitation so you don't fluid overload the patient. Uh, and you can also use point-of-care testing to uh, measure hemoglobin, uh, coagulation, TEG is pretty helpful, and it's paramount to uh, correct the coagulopathy, really. Actually, a big part of the coagulopathy comes from hyper 
fibrinolysis, and, and some experts recommend using tranexamic acid as a way to counteract the hyperfibrinolysis that is associated with these long procedures. And the recommended dose is uh, one gram every eight hours of uh, ongoing operation. And the last thing I wanted to mention here is that uh, you can use cell saver, even though we are we are usually taught that cell saver is not applicable in cancer operations. You can do that if you expect uh, significant blood loss. What you have to do in addition is to irradiate the uh, saved red cells, and then you can administer them back to the patient. Do you want to just speak quickly about some of the post-op management of these patients? Because uh, you know our second and third year residents often manage these patients after a long day in the operating room, and they've gotten adequate resuscitation in the OR. Uh, how does that transition to them on the handoff, and what should they expect uh, for the next eight hours while they're managing these patients? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, essentially, once the operation is uh, completed, the resuscitation continues. So the patient has to be in a monitored setting. Obviously, most of the times they'll end up in the surgical ICU if it's a very limited resection and it's just a high back, they can be monitored in the in the um, step down unit. But usually they're intubated, um, and so they uh, and maybe with a pressure requirement. Uh, so as I said, we need to continue aggressive resuscitation. We usually tailor uh, our fluids administration to urine output and normal tension, essentially, but uh, urine output is the easiest uh, way to tailor it, and we're aiming for something like uh, one ml per kilogram per hour uh, for the first and second post-op day. You, uh, that way you can counteract some of the side effects of the uh, operation itself and ensure that you have good perfusion to prevent uh, kidney injury and so forth. Uh, you want to check the patient's labs frequently, uh, correct any anemia, uh, correct coagulopathy, replete electrolytes, all these things can really impact the patient care. And uh, it's important to note here that we usually see a um, drop in different cell lines and cytopenias that are a consequence of uh, not only the SERS response, but also the chemotherapeutic agents that are causing some uh, bone marrow suppression. Mitomycin C doesn't have so much of a systemic effect, but other agents can cause much more profound bone marrow suppression like uh, platinum agents and, and uh, so forth. So we, you have to anticipate that. So what's the typical morbidity and mortality like for these patients? This is a, um, traditional has been a very morbid operation. We're becoming better at that, but still studies caught a um, morbidity of 12 to up to 52%, and uh, mortality can be up to 6% with modern uh, in modern experience centers. So something that is very important in, in selecting your patients appropriately and being very aggressive with intraop and periop management overall. Is this something that's correlated with malignancy type or is this just all comers? This is all comers. These are numbers for all comers and uh, certainly you can have some variation with specific malignancies, but uh, these are the numbers for perioperative uh, morbidity and mortality, predominantly because of uh, perioperative events. So I guess, you know, that's a great overview there. If you were to look ahead for the next five to 10 years and the use of HIPEC, where do you think the future directions are for this therapy? Uh, I think the future is very exciting and I hope to get into that myself, to be honest. There's uh, several trials that are in the works, meaning either being designed and uh, now or are enrolling. And I think they're studying uh, a few different things. Number one, studying new uh, agents and different combinations with uh, with heat or no heat. So there have been a few recent trials, mostly in Europe, with negative results, seemingly negative results. Uh, but the time of the perfusion, the combination of chemotherapeutic agents, the patient selection, 
is an area of controversy. So different experts in the field are coming together to see what can they change uh, in those parameters to augment the effect of chemotherapy and target appearance better. That's one. The second thing is, which I think I mentioned earlier, neoadjuvant administration of IP chemotherapy as a means to prepare patients for surgery downstage disease and converting it to operative candidates potentially. I think there's a, a lot of enthusiasm in the field of gastric cancer when it comes to that, especially in patients who have negative diagnostic laparoscopy pre-op in locally advanced gastric cancer, but they have positive perennial cytology. Uh, those might be good candidates to give them IP chemotherapy and then restage them with a, a follow-up diagnosed laparoscopy. If they convert to negative cytology, then you proceed with your resection, assuming they haven't progressed somewhere else. I think in the future, we're going to have also administration of uh, targeted uh, agents intraperinally, either alone or in conjunction with chemotherapy. I can see that happening, for example, in pancreatic cancer, where you, you, it's a very aggressive malignancy, but maybe you can... Uh, avoid giving systemic targeted agents that, that can have both targeted effects in some other organs and give them just where the tumor is more likely to to uh, recur. And then the last thing that I think will come in the coming years uh, with improvement in different technologies is uh, employing molecular profiling of the tumors to help determine who will respond best to these kind of treatment CRS and HIPEC and potentially even identify actionable mutations or other therapeutic vulnerabilities and then give the appropriate uh, chemotherapy or, or targeted agents that can benefit these patients most. Well, Cousin Danos, yeah, I just want to thank you. I think this has been a great overview going over some of the, the definitions of HIPEC, its utilization, uh, what to expect in the operating room, and the future directions for it. I'm going to hold you to coming back in five years and tell me where you're at and how much you've advanced the science. So I appreciate your time today. I would love to. Thank you so much for the opportunity. So thanks again to Dr. Constantino Zamberinis for joining us today. I'm sure the residents will find this review extremely helpful as they prepare for a rotation on the surgical oncology service. Next week, we will continue our chief podcast project with Dr. Haley Leasley on the management of esophageal perforations. Stay tuned for that and other upcoming discussions on topics such as crushing compartment syndrome, carotid disease, and aortitis, to name a few. We will also be doing a special podcast takeover in a few weeks with some of our previous Brown Critical Care Fellows and faculty, so be on the lookout for that. Have a great week, and I'm looking forward to having you back with us in the next episode. 